everyone, and welcome to Art of Citizenry podcast, where we navigate the complexities of doing good in an unequal world. I am your host and in-house educator, Manpreet Korkalra. conversations about thanksgiving, or better yet, thanks-taking, it is important to acknowledge the first people to encounter the pilgrims, the Wampanoag tribe. It is unfortunate that while most of us know so much about the pilgrim's journey because of the way we've been taught history, most of us don't know the name of the community that was first colonized in what is now known as the United States of America. This is one simple example of how indigenous people or Native Americans have experienced centuries of dehumanization, genocide, and erasure. Addressing histories of exploitation takes deconstructing the systems we operate in. One simple step we can each take is acknowledge the people on whose land we reside. Black Americans, descendants of American chattel slavery, were taken captive and brought here to America for textile and agricultural work, building the wealth of this country. The dehumanization, exploitation, and abuse that Black people have had to endure for centuries continues today as Black Americans still face injustices and inequalities in most spaces. Despite directly contributing to the wealth of this country, when enslaved Black Americans were freed, they did not receive reparations. Today, Black Americans collectively experience one of the highest poverty rates of any group in the United States. Our acknowledgement of this horrific truth and examination of how we can provide support without causing further damage is a necessary step if we are to be part of creating real systemic change. This year marks 400 years since the Mayflower arrived on Plymouth Rock. We must critically analyze the story we have been told and by who. It is time we deconstruct rethink, and rebuild a more just future. Reclaim Black Friday is a campaign focused on redistributing to land-based organizations because it is important to acknowledge the original stewards of the land and return it to those who have historically cultivated regenerative and healing relationships with the earth. It is important to hold space for reclaiming and healing, recognizing the trauma and genocide that is widely celebrated through what has been painted as an endearing holiday of gratitude. Thank you for joining me for this special podcast episode. You will be hearing the voices of four Indigenous and Black activists and educators in a panel conversation titled 
from Thanksgiving to Black Friday, Deconstructing America's History and Future. This panel was hosted by Reclaim Collaborative in collaboration with ESJ and Art of Citizenry as part of Reclaim Black Friday, a campaign calling on brands to redistribute a percentage of their sales to indigenous and black land-based organizations instead of running sales during Black Friday weekend. For more information, please check out the show notes or find at Reclaim Collaborative on Instagram. Without further ado, I will let our panel moderator, Julissa Sosa, a native Chicana visual artist, take it away from here. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Julissa Sosa. I am a native Chicana, and I am based out of Yanaguana, which is also known as San Antonio, Texas. So I will be uh, allowing our panelists to introduce themselves. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start with Kai. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah, I'm Kai. My pronouns are they and he. I'm a community organizer and a land steward. Uh, I work for uh, Southwest Workers Union as well as uh, Trans Lifeline, uh, Trans Led Suicide Hotline, as well as a um, trans led organization that works uh, to get funding for. Uh, name change uh, court orders and um, other documents that uh, trans folks need. And I am from uh, Yanawana, uh, Sobisek, uh, formerly known as San Antonio. Amaya, would you like to go next? Yes, thank you so much. Hi, everyone. My name is Amaya Scott. My English pronouns are they, them, or she, hers. I am a second-year PhD student at the University of Denver, which occupies the homelands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute. In addition, I am an avid user of social media. You can find my Instagram and TikTok at the Aesthetics, or um, how it's spelled in social media as Dine Aesthetics. But I also run a blog um, called Dine Aesthetics.com, where I critically analyze, reflect about what it means to be Dine queer and trans in the 21st century. Thank you. Emma, would you like to go next? Yeah, I'm so honored to be here. Shay Emma Robbins, Yanishka, Bilagana Nishlin, Hashgan Hadzoke, Bashish Chin, Bilagana Dasha Che, Ado Nakaidan Edashanale, Akut Ego Sana Nishlin, Ado. Navajo Water Project, but Nashnishto, I am here coming from you, coming to you from Tongva land, um, also Los Angeles. And I live half of the month here in LA and half of the month back home on the reservation. I'm the director of the Navajo Water Project with Dig Deep Water. And I'm also an artist and the founder of the indigenous art space, The Chapter House. Hi everyone, um, I'm Katie Pruitt. My pronouns are she and her. I am the founder and editor-in-chief of ESJ, the, to my knowledge, the only print magazine in the world, um, independently Black woman-owned, that focuses specifically on sustainability and fashion, but also really centering the voices of the people who are impacted the most by the issues we're attempting to address. Um, and so I'm really proud of that, and that's what I do. And I'm happy to be here with y'all today. Well, great. So today we will be diving right into it. Um, we're going to be tackling the Thanksgiving myth. So um, the first question that I have for our panelists, what's the real story behind the Thanksgiving celebration? And how has the whitewashed version of this day and time of year impacted you and your community? 
I am digitally presenting y'all from the central part of the Navajo Nation, where I am currently um, staying for the month of November due to um, being exposed to COVID early in the month um, and also decided to stay with family in the pod. In addition, because I'm still getting over COVID, I have a cough. And so at any moment, if I just like mute myself and just like have a coffee fit, feel free um, to any of the panelists who'd like jump in. But yes, Thanksgiving. Well, <laughs> so I sort of did a deep dive into the sort of history recently. And it's so fascinating with how sort of complex it is with all these different narratives. Um, people talk about Thanksgiving where it's the sort of feast that happened between the um, ancestors of the Mashpee and Wampanoag and other indigenous peoples within the New England area and within the pilgrims, which, and then there's a sort of another conversation about how Thanksgiving was a sort of fasting and filled with prayers from the English Puritan side of understanding. And then there was also a declaration of Thanksgiving back in May after the massacre of the Pequot in community where the sort of Englishmen sort of basically committed a whole massacre slash genocide of indigenous women and children. And then there's the Thanksgiving as we know it as a national holiday within this one known as the United States, which became sort of nationalized by President, um, then President Abraham Lincoln. And the story we understand of Thanksgiving was sort of curated by a white woman, Sarah Josephie Hale, um, who at the time ran an editorial herself. And so Thanksgiving sort of became a sort of movement for nationalism as trying to sort of Americanize an identity or sort of like create an American identity. Yet I think in all of these narratives, a running thread of it is this continued genocide, murder, removal, displacement of indigenous peoples from the narrative and remaking them in an image that fits within the sort of U.S. occupation of Stolen. I just wanted to add, you know, thank you for that. That was a really great background. I think one thing is it gets back to the idea, right? Like who's reporting this history and all of us, you know, on this panel or call and even just dialing in in the entire world or, you know, especially in the Americas, we and our ancestors are technically involved in this history, but it's generally not told by us. It's told by people of white European descent. So we look at it, you know, we still see things. I remember last year I was in the airport and there was this kid wearing this headdress and it was just like, oh my God, like, how is that still okay? And it definitely was something that was hurtful and surprising. It was like the day before Thanksgiving. And it's something where it's like, that kid's definitely taught something different than I was growing up. I will say my relationship to Thanksgiving hasn't always been a negative one because we haven't celebrated it in the way that white America talks about it. It's been much more from an aspect of this is what we do traditionally as the Neh people, which is coming together and celebrating each other. And my family has always taken it as a day of resistance and resilience and sort of like well, we have the day off too. And so we should come together as a family and say, we're here to support and love one each other, one another. And that can be through food. Um, personally, don't cook at all, probably once a year. So I'm really happy when people can do that for me. But I think it's definitely important to have these conversations again and say, all right, but let's also talk about it from other cultures. And let's also talk about it in an indigenous lens. And it wasn't like a happy moment for us. Oftentimes these feasts moving forward from the mid 1600s were based around celebrating massacres of native peoples as well. And now we're seeing our sisters and brothers um, from Northern tribes specifically, like the Mashpee Wampanoag are going through horrible things. And it's not something that 
things just changed overnight and like cool we're celebrating together it is continued exploitation continued massacre and honestly a holocaust that still goes on in the 21st century so i think i just want to say that my association with it related to my family has been a really positive one to come back and make traditional dishes and to come back and celebrate our resilience and just be together i i definitely relate to that emma like uh having I feel like as like displaced African people, like, you know, taken, taken here against our, our will, um, our, you know, my ancestors taken here against our will and still feeling that like displacement and like disconnects as like black people. And so really like, yeah, this like so-called holiday, like doesn't, like has never felt like connected to anything that is colonial and like it or American or anything like that. Like it's definitely been about like coming together as family and honoring like family and honoring our like history, honoring our ancestors and like, and being, being together in that way. And I just really relate to that. Yeah, I was thinking um, as you were speaking too, like who gets to share the narratives and it made me think about power dynamics, you know, um, who gets to tell the story that is received by everyone. And as Kai mentioned, being, you know, a black black American person, uh, person, a descendant of American chattel slavery, we are often lost in a lot of this um, because so much of our stories have been whitewashed as well. And so like, coming together as, you know, Black people, Black Americans specifically, we have our own cultural traditions that somehow get erased too and lumped into white America, which isn't the case, but like coming together with family and just being thankful for one another. And in my case, and in in where I grew up in Dallas, Texas, in a very, you know, I don't know what the right term is, like, is it like lower socioeconomic, the hood? Everybody is the hood. <laughs> I don't know any <laughs> proper way to say that, but it's just like being in each other's presence and celebrating that we're able to be in each other's presence. What has what it has been what it's always about. But I, in most recent years, have found myself just really reflecting on the various uh, versions of the actual events that took place around this time and thinking about like, how I wanted to not and not just acknowledge, but, you know, share that with my child, because I certainly don't want to continue to perpetuate like the harm that is not telling the truth of, you know, telling people stories in truth. And so like, I have just decided to take a step back and, um, I don't know what the right action is, but it feels good to just say this is another day and just be with my family like any other day um, until I come to a place that feels like, you know, I know where to where to move next. And because I know we'll get into this later, but I feel like, you know, um, Amaya, we, we talked about this a little bit last night and it's kind of tied into this, how it impacts your community or your family. Like I have a school aged child now who goes to school with them doing, participating in things that they have no context. They have no, you know, 
connection to these things that they're being told to do certain dances and make, you know, headdresses. And that for me is extremely problematic. And I find myself having to address it often, but, and, and it's a weird place to be in because you, as black as a black person or as an indigenous person, we're always in the position where we're having to do the work to undo the things that we never had any part in to begin with. And that is an incredibly heavy burden to carry. Um, And it, it feels incredibly unfair, but it's like, if I don't address it, then no one else is. And I have to talk to my child about why this is not okay. And even this morning had to send a message about appropriation. Like, Hey, do we need to do a presentation on appropriation? Because this dance, this, this dance is sacred and ritualistic and, and it's, it should not be something that the kids are participating in and they have no context. And it's just, it's a constant like battle of like who gets to share the story, who has the power over it. And when we speak, up it's like everything is questionable like well where did you where are your cite your sources it's like I am the source I am the fucking source um so yeah it's 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 a struggle and I just yeah as a parent specifically like now it's like the the pressure is real no that's so important so recognizing that we are in a global pandemic um I also think this is the first year in which we have the opportunity to talk and engage with children about this education that they receive in schools. Because like most, I I don't know about folks in other parts of what is known as the United States, but I know that within um, my household, so currently I have three of my cousins living with my um, mom. And so they're all in online classes. And so sometimes I like overhear the things they're talking about. And I think that's important to recognize that like for the first time in almost 500 plus years, Black and Native children, like the education they're receiving, we are privy to it. We have control over it, especially as people who, um, as parents and guardians who are taking care of children, like we have the opportunity to intervene and have those critical conversations. And second thing I want to highlight is also um, my own relationship um, to these holidays. Um, In my household, my mom um, made it a point to celebrate every holiday. Like, Um, She is like this visibly brown Native woman, but she made us celebrate Easter. She made us get fireworks. She has, um, we have dinners for Thanksgiving. She took us out for Halloween. She goes all out for Christmas. And the reason why she does this is because for her, these are moments to spend time together with family. And these are moments that she didn't get to have in her childhood. And she did the best she could was trying to make sure that my sister and I had that kind of childhood, that sort of like Americanized dream of like what a childhood should be, but she indigenized it. She made sure that we weren't being violent or disrespectful to other cultures and communities because she herself experienced that type of violence in school, like as like a brown native woman. And so as an educator, she does the best she can. I think it was actually last year in 2019, that was the first year that I was home for Thanksgiving, or as I call it, Thanksgiving, um, since 2013, when I went to, um, for undergrad in the New England area. And so I, everything basically what Emma said about spending time with family and being with family um, has been emphasized in my life. And that's how I associate with these holidays.
Yeah. And I think, you know, it's also like related to what Charlie and Katie said is like, it's just like this perpetuation of otherization. Like I get so many text messages on Thanksgiving and it's like this white guilt generally or non-native guilt. And like, I'm sorry, what happened to your people? And it's like, what are you talking about? Like it's, it's, I get that where it comes from, it comes from a place of, you know, wanting to give love and feel that they're doing some sort of reparation. But it's just like, you don't need to talk to me that way. Like I'm like the token native. I don't know if any other people have this experience, but it's like, I joke with my partner where my invitations for Thanksgiving are so high generally during non-pandemic times. And I always joke, I'm like, everyone loves a native at Thanksgiving dinner. And it's true because I've been in situations and I don't know if anyone has these other experiences too, And I'm sure in other situations, like as black and brown people, when we're at any event and someone puts you on the spot, it's like, I think for many of us people and many of us indigenous peoples is like, autumn is just one big F you because it's like, we have, you know, Columbus Day, we have Halloween where people dress up as sexy Indians. We have racist mascots who are playing. I mean, this year it was like the Cleveland Indians who were playing up until a certain point. We have the Washington team, which I'm still waiting for you to change your name. Dan Schneider. But um, I think it's just something where it's like Thanksgiving just adds on to that. And it's something where like I cringe and I can't wait until the holidays are over because it just starts this really messed up moment of, well, we're just being a family. We're just celebrating things. And it's like, ugh, it just is so creepy. And so for you to share that, Katie, about, um, you know, your child, I really appreciate that because I know my sister now lives back home on the res. And for a while she was in Tucson, Arizona. And my niece who's, you know, Navajo would be in school like as a six or seven year old. And my sister would constantly have to contact the school and say like, this is inappropriate and you shouldn't do that. And it's like, you said like, we are the sources. Why do we have to stand up and say that? Like, how about you just use Google like the rest of us? You know, like I always say the quote from our social media coordinator, don't be frugal with your Google. Like literally, I'm sure y'all have smartphones. I'm sure you have the internet. You probably have it in your school. Like just do a little bit of background because putting an hour research into it doesn't really take that much. And I think it's up to parents like yourself and I'm actually a soon to be parent. And I'll say like, these are things now that I think about these things where it's like, how am I going to have those conversations and how am I going to confront it? Like I recently had a friend who honestly, we're not really friends anymore, but they named their kid Kit Carson. And they were like, oh, it's, they're not Navajo. They're like, you know, Kit Carson for us is like Hitler for, for Navajos specifically. And it was just like, oh my God, we couldn't even have a conversation about it where I was like, do you even know who Kit Carson is? And it's like, well, this is a family name and blah, blah, blah. And they actually ended up changing the name slightly after I sent over a couple articles, but it was like, why do I have to prove that to you? You know, like, what is your problem? And it comes back again to this thing where it's like, I'm not being confrontational. I'm telling you how I feel and my feelings and our feelings as black and brown folks matter just as much as yours, your history. Okay. Like you're pushing it onto the rest of us. So why don't you just listen to me and give me the space for like two minutes to send a Google link or to talk to you as my student's educator, my child's educator. Because it's not just about my kid, it's about other people. And it's about my child going on to other moments where they might not feel comfortable. So I really appreciate you standing up for that. And I think Charlie as well, like, you know, my dad being in boarding school and having that experience, it's like growing up, you know, we did Christmas and stuff. Like my mom's family's Jewish and I'm, I'm an Navajo, And like, it's just one of these things where it's like, 
I didn't do it in a religious way, but again, as like a community coming together. So I just, I identify with what everybody's saying here. And I really appreciate everybody standing up because we're not going to open our mouths. And if we're fortunate to have the platform and speak, who else is going to do it? Thank you. These are all amazing points. There's something I want to backtrack just a little bit. Amaya, you mentioned thanksgiving. Um, I've never heard that word, but I love it. That is like, that's all of it in one one simple term. Um, so this question um, will be directed at Kai, but anyone else can also jump in. Um, so what can non-Black and non-Indigenous solidarity look like without falling into that whole like white savior trap? Yeah, I definitely, it's definitely something that I have thought about a lot, especially with like, even with the things that are coming up right now of like, uh, there's just so, there's so much labor already on uh, BIPOC folks and Black and Indigenous folks in general. And um, taking some of that labor away is a great idea, but I think sometimes it can verge on yeah white saviorism which is more so still taking like like similar to what katie was saying this this power of like having feeling like you are still in in power and need to help uh help help black and indigenous folks figure it out and it's it's like we already have so much knowledge ourselves and we have so much knowledge that is out there like emma was saying as well it's all on google you don't even have to like hit up a a black or indigenous person for that labor um but yeah and i think what i really in instead of yeah a lot of the times another word comes up of like ally or allyship and instead personally i want either a comrade or an accomplice um because i need white folks or i would like white folks to see see power in in so many different ways the reason why i don't like the word allyship is because a lot of times what i see with that is this need to show off the acts of kindness or empathy so for example you know yes donating to black and indigenous organizations or donating uh, directly to black and indigenous folks is incredibly important but we don't need you to post on social media and say oh look what i did today i donated to this indigenous tribe okay like <laughs> you don't ha- uh, you don't have to do you don't have to do all that like you know we yes we like we hold all this this knowledge there and yes there is like a lot of power that that white folks do have like in our in the world that we live in but i think it's more important to see power in in very silent ways and by that i mean like not taking up space uh so we i think that's what i personally need is like space to be able to have like black and indigenous space like specific spaces without white folks there no it just made me think of like what you're talking about because you know white saviorism is something that um we address a lot and particularly this part of fashion um with fair trade um and so on and so forth but it made me think of uh the muted campaign that happened over the summer where um but i had to address it because it was like i'm going to announce that i'm going to not take up space but let you know that i'm not gonna take up space and i feel that and i 
don't know if this is going to be offensive. And I don't know that I really care that it's going to be offensive. I feel that it is like nature, second nature for white people to dominate and to always be in control and to always like, there's no such thing as um, relinquishing power for them. It's just not, I don't, I don't know what that feels like or looks like for them. And I think that it's just impossible to imagine a world where they don't get to control things. And that is where white saviorism comes from. It's a little bit of guilt and a little bit of like, hey, look at what I'm doing. I'm doing good, but I want you to know I'm doing good. But let me tell you something, when you're really about that life and you really are here for change, you don't get to donate $10 here and there. You have to give up some power and some wealth and you got to be uncomfortable and you get to feel how we've been feeling for centuries. That's what that looks like. Thank you, um, Katie, for saying all of that. I think something that I think it's important to highlight is that although I strongly believe that Black and Indigenous people should have their own spaces, we need to get to the root of colorism within Indigenous communities in particular. Like, I, 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 like people always conflate indigeneity with that of people of color. And I think there needs to be a critical conversation of like what that means because Indigenous peoples come in all shapes and features. Like there are some visible white native folks versus black and brown native folks and our experiences with racism is completely different yet we are are all affected by colonialism but I think like when we do talk about solidarity and when we do talk about space making I think there is an importance to center black and brown solidarity especially black and brown indigenous peoples all together because like white white natives have the option opportunity privilege access however you want to describe it they have the opportunity to deny and come up into space and appear as white and they have the opportunity to benefit from whiteness and white supremacy. And so what does that look like? What, what does solidarity look like from them specifically? And as someone who is a non-Black um, native and a non-Black individual, I always think of allyship as like literally a verb, but I will never, never claim to be an ally because my idea has always been like, it needs to be the community that needs to start to claim you who and acknowledge you as someone who is in solidarity and working with them. Like, it's so fascinating to me, like how, because Emma mentioned how like the fall is a very violent time for Native Indigenous peoples. And I feel like it's always the spring and summer that is the worst time for Black folks in this country because we have, because like the issues are highlighted. And then we get into Black Lives Matter and the continued police brutality and violence that Black folks face in this country. And so it's like, how can we have those conversations within our community about anti-Blackness? And like, how exactly can those conversations lead to acts of solidarity and acts of allyship? It's so complex. I hate like how, for lack of better words, how fucked up colonialism has done to all of us. Yeah, I just want to say what Kai said. I was like over here taking notes. I think it's really important and something vocabulary that I've never thought about with camaraderie or comrades and accomplices. I think that's something that I just want to really touch on that. That was really important because, you know, with having an online indigenous community space and opening this art space, brick and mortar, ally is something that I use a lot. And I think that does actually really shift the way that I think. So I just want to point that out and say thank you for bringing that up. But yeah, I mean... Katie, like you said, like making space is so important. And I always crack up when I see people take like screenshots, like just donated this. I'm like the miniest clap ever. You know what I mean? Like 
Cool, bro. Like, but yeah, I just, I love what everybody's saying here because I agree with everything. And talking about the seasons of spring and summer, that's also something where it's like, it'd be interesting to see a calendar of colonization and the problems and then also like a collaboration of, and this is how we combat it. Future project for post panel. We, I love that we touched on the the idea of this kind of performance um, allyship that's very superficial on many levels. So let's get down like into the real, the where you can put literally your money where your mouth is. Let's talk about reparations for Black Americans. What are they? Why are they necessary? And let's also touch on um, the redistribution of funds and land to Indigenous communities. Yeah, I think that there's so many creative ways to like think about reparations and it doesn't have to just be like, yeah, donating directly. Like if you don't have funds, like that's okay too. Like there's definitely ways that that reparations can like look and and like be imagined. But I think what's important to like think about here is like that reparations like as a whole like isn't just like a sort of racial justice like issue like it's also like a climate justice issue and like for example yeah colonization has destroyed almost like so many you know like this pillaging of the land and like this like power being taken like over the land and instead of this like relational aspects with with the land and like being in community like with the land and i i like personally want to see like yeah like reparations yes in in uh monetary ways but definitely like in land as well and the fact that this is like a global like issue like it's not just uh the americas like yes we're talking about uh things taking and and everything but this is not just the Americas that we're talking about, like the whole concept of like land back is not, is not just focused on the America. It's, it's globally, like giving the land back to caretakers of the land, you know, and people who actually have that connection and community, like with the land instead of this power. And I guess that's what is really important to me. Um, Yeah, I didn't say earlier, but I am a gardener (laughs) and I just like my my connection with the land does feel like really ancestral. And whenever I'm able to connect like with the land, I do feel like my ancestors with me. And and I think about my ancestors, even the ancestors who were slaves, like as caretakers like of the land. And so Anywho, I'm going to pass it on. Yeah, I, I, was, I was just getting a little bit emotional. I didn't know if I was going to have to turn the camera off because um, I don't know. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> Reparations We're here for you, are. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's been so much that has been taken, and it's not just land, but Black people were brought here for their knowledge of textile work and agricultural knowledge. And we were, our ancestors were exploited, dehumanized, murdered. There was theft, there was separation of families. And we still feel the impact of that today. And and our communities have not received, the government owes us money. That's what reparations is. 
And I see, you know, there's every once in a while, there's a new bill to be discussed about how they want to handle reparations because we can't figure that out. Um, we can figure it out for everyone else, but not black Americans. We can't figure it out for us. And I saw that Biden and Kamala are doing research as to how they can go about doing this. It's just like, just pay us because while people can argue all day long about, well, I didn't enslave anyone and my family didn't enslave, but this country and the economy and the way that it exists, although problematic, stands because of the exploitation of black Americans. And it is a fact, and we have not benefited from it in any way. The inequities are still here in the workplace, in education, in healthcare. The wealth disparity, like there's still a very high percent. I don't remember what the percentage of, of black people, but the poverty rate is still high for us. Even though like there's this study that came out a few years ago about black women and fams being like the most educated group um, in the country, like there's still poverty. And if you look back to even when I guess it was like the early 1900s when black people finally did get to a place where they could build sustainable communities and lives for themselves, people came in and burned and took that. And so we're still fighting now. So no reparations is the government owes us fucking money. And I don't care what kind of research you need to do. You need to figure it out because we're getting tired of, of, of like being in this shit. Like it's, it's exhausting. It's traumatizing. It's, like it's it wears on our on our health um and that's what i think about with reparations is you owe us everything and i will <laughs> i won't personally i i'm like the reason why i'm so emotional is because this week i was spending a lot of time uh, reading about reparations and reading about haiti and what france did to haiti and reading about you know <clears throat> you know, the black American communities and, and how just all the stories and just understanding what all the different forms that reparations could take. And so I'm really emotional about it, but I'm like focused in on it right now. It's like, like, I don't know how I'm going to move forward and making sure this happens, but it's, I'm adding it to the list of the things that I want to fight for. And so, yeah, I don't care what, you know, people want to say about, well, we didn't, Mitch McConnell, I don't even know why I need to say his name, but literally said that I don't think it makes sense to give reparations for something that happened hundreds of years ago and nobody who's alive is responsible for that. That's absolutely not true because everyone who's alive, who's white, has benefit from, benefited from it. That's a problem. So, yeah, I don't know. And land also, like, you know, we talk about specifically in environmentalism, the issue that, that ties back to what Kai was saying is that you always get to see and hear from white folks and they're the experts on what needs to happen and driving Teslas and, you know, what clean energy looks like. And it's like, but you don't want to talk about why we're here. You don't want to talk about industrialization by way of colonization and why the land is so depleted and destroyed. So the people who should be leading these conversations are the black and indigenous folks, like Kai said, the people who have the connection to the land and understand it more than they ever could. And that also looks like reparations. Land back, pay me what you owe my ancestors, and that's that's what I'm fighting for. Uh, Kai, Kate, like everything everything of that and i think something i do want to highlight it's not just the federal government there are native nations that did participate in the enslavement of black folks and they definitely need to engage in reparations in that conversation about that because their like their ancestors and also their descendants 
still benefit from anti-blackness and also continue to disenfranchise the freedmen from those communities, such as the Cherokee freedmen, the Choctaw freedmen, all the freedmen, all of whom are not allowed to be enrolled in their tribe and be recognized as Native Americans or citizens of Native nations. And I think that's a conversation that definitely needs to be had. And Kai, rapper, I also think reparations is also an issue of reproductive justice and public health as well, because like considering what this nation, what science, Western science has done to Black folks and Indigenous folks, especially when we think about um, Henrietta, in which how her DNA was literally exploited to create this whole field of medicine and science and engineering. It's just like, it's so frustrating um, with how much like this nation has benefited from has benefited from exploiting black bodies and also the removal and genocide of indigenous people. Like when we th- when I think about solidarity, I always talk about that conversation of like we literally have the exact same person. Yet also we need to recognize that indigenous peoples, indigenous communities on this nation also benefited from the exploitation of black folks. And so, what does that look like for us to recognize and sort of engage in that critical conversation of like rep- reparation looks like for black folks specifically because like I like I always get this converse like people always send me a message that be like what does land back look like then like what are you going to do about like people who live in urban spaces or people who are for like black folks or people who like aren't like who also like experience violence from the United States and I'm just like you're assuming that like we're going to displace you like you did to us like I think there's a question of like why do you fear that why do you fear being removed and displaced when like your ancestors, especially colonizing ancestors, engaged in that. Land back does not mean like we're going to like displace everyone. Land back is rooted in this idea of literally getting to stewardship and restoring that ancestral relationship with the land and letting native people, black and native people lead that conversation around that movement. But there's like, there's such a fear of like black and indigenous leadership. And I wonder why, <laughs> like, I wonder why, like maybe, maybe folks can like ask that, ask themselves why that, like, why are you so afraid of black and brown indigenous people leading that conversation and leading us into a world that's rooted in liberation and freedom, literally by like redistributing power and resources. Thank you everybody for sharing. Um, I really, I'm glad that y'all have all touched on the different ways that we can um, begin to dismantle this whole system. But uh, what, you know, besides land back, besides reparations, what are some additional steps that we can take um, to continue dismantling and uh, specifically also, you know, for um, non-Black and non-Indigenous peoples as well? Personally, what I feel is like, I, I think what I'm most passionate about is like mutual aid. But I think personally, what I'm thinking of is finding ways that are outside the realm of voting that you can engage with your community and like find what it is that you are passionate about that is like maybe a need of your community directly. And not saying that you have to lead that, but maybe follow what other folks in your community have been doing because the work is there, I'm sure, already. The infrastructure is there. And just following what those organizations, more than likely led by BIPOC Fems, I'm sure. But um, like just following what those leaders in your community are doing outside of the realm of voting and putting your energy into that. So maybe that means like, okay, on the weekends, on Saturday and Sunday, I'm gonna go uh, work at this, I don't know, community organization. Or maybe, you know, you're more of like a policy person 
trying to figure out how to how to get in more policies that are working against police br- brutality in your city in your community uh just finding like whatever it is that you are most passionate about that your community also needs and following that you don't have to be the leader I would say, so much of my social media content is rooted in this idea of inspiring joy and justice through education. And like, it's, sometimes it can be exhausting, but I think at the end of the day, um, literally just, literally just Google, read some things, learn, engage in those type of materials. There's like so many books, articles um, that are available digitally. But also, like, there's, like, also this balance of, like, yeah, read what it's saying, but also be a little more critical. Like, if if you are reading a book about, or if you're, like, you're fo- let's say you're following someone on social media, and they, they post a Black square in honor of Blackout Tuesday for Black Lives Matter, and they've never talked about Black Lives Matter at all. It's it's a little performative, um, one, but also like if they're not giving you resources or other accounts to follow, there's this sort of like consolidation of power that they're doing. So also be critical of like who is trying to who's trying to build and hold on to a platform instead of redistributing that wealth and knowledge. Because like there are people out here who want to be the next influencer, but they don't want to support other folks. And I think there's an important conversation about that performativity and activism, especially on social media. And so, and then the other thing I would say is like, have those conversations with people in your lives. Like I, it's hard. Yes. Like I have talked to my mother about um, meritocracy socioeconomic statuses, the legalization of weed, um, police brutality. And like, yeah, there are some moments where she was resistant to them. But like, at the end of the day, I'm like, it's my responsibility to make sure that people are like getting a living wage and talking to my mom, why it's a problem that like, why she thinks that just because she has a master's degree, why she should be paid more when I'm just like, there's people who didn't have the educational opportunities, but also people who don't have the networking to have those type of like access. And so let's talk about that. And I know like talking about like, for example, today is Trans Day of Remembrance. And so talking about transphobia and trans misogyny in my household is also like a difficult conversation because like as a trans individual, I'm just like, it's exhausting. But like, if I'm not going to do it and my family is not going to access those articles, then like there needs to be a little more, there needs, I don't explain it. There's like, there needs to be a sacrifice as well in these type of things. Because like, as like a non-white indigenous queer trans person, like I have a platform and a voice, but also want to make sure that like, that voice is also amplifying others. And the only way to do that is like building those type of re- meaningful relationships and those collaborations with other people. And so there's also that too. There needs to be an attention to build with others. Like we can't have this future that we're dreaming if it's just by ourselves. That'd be lonely. <laughs> but I think that's like, that's like a good summary of like what you can do today and then you can do better tomorrow. Yeah, I just want to chime in here. Like, I definitely think education is key, like whether that's educating yourself or spreading that knowledge. And even just starting out from the most like basic things like the vocabulary to use, or I'd also say like legally, you know, Katie mentioned like Biden and um, Harris researching. I agree, like money's always the answer, like just figure it out. It's not that hard there. And, you know, yes, it's hard, but like, come on, bro. But um, I think... 
also researching legal aspects of things because the more armed with knowledge we are when it comes to different governments, the more we can reference and the more that we can actually say this is how it's actually going to plug and play. Also in organizations that are doing on the ground work, like I think, again, creating space, like I feel like a lot of times the work that my team and I do with bringing running water to people, it's like we do rely on a lot of other people to bring social media or bring attention in that way, but also honoring those people who are doing that work because I think sometimes it can get sort of frustrating where it's like, you know, there's like keyboard warriors or whatnot, but talking about the fact like a lot, like I had a, I had an interview before this with someone who was talking about doers, like that was the article and it was like, we're not some like random unicorns either that are out here. Like there are people all across the world who are working on this in so many ways and whether you're interviewing them or not, like acknowledging that there are people who are working on all of these things on getting people back resources that are much deserved. But I totally agree with what everybody here is saying, like finding what you're interested in and plugging into that. Because I know when I'm interested in things, when it comes to indigenous and arts issues and water and human rights, I'm so much more passionate about it. And I'm going to do so much more research. And then somebody else might see you who's younger. I feel so old, like saying this, but the youth, it's up to the youth is you might spark them where they say, well, that's not necessarily what I'm interested in, but I see that there's a model in order to educate myself and educate others about that. I think everything comes from this small building block of education and it gets into these bigger things. I was going to say, and my, my comment is, is coming from this place of, was it the, the dismantling, right? What that looks like for, from, I don't have a, um, any suggestions for white people, um, but for us, it looks like the resistance in, you know, resting. And it looks like pushing back in all the ways against capitalism and challenging all the system in all the ways. Um, I feel like, and I don't know how this is going to sound. I'm not trying to toot my own horn or whatever, but I feel like, um, and I'm about to get emotional again. Y'all help me. I'm about to <laughs> my magazine, I feel like, is a platform that challenges all of it. It challenges what we've seen in fashion for centuries. Has it been centuries? I guess, past hundred years. Um, what we've seen pushed as the acceptable, acceptable beauty standard. Um, who gets to, again, like share the stories? Who gets to be marketable? Um, and I feel like ESJ is pushed back in every way against those things. And I'm very proud of that. And I'm, And what makes me, I guess, um, hopeful mostly is being in community with folks like Kai, who uh, wrote a piece for the, the latest issue on what gardening and reconnecting with the land can look like for people who have that relationship and people who've been so far removed with it that they don't even know where to begin. That is also reclaiming space. And that also, for me, feels like resistance. And that, for me, that resistance feels like a dismantling. And so that's, that's what I wanted to share. And also, I love all of y'all again. I'm so emotional today. I don't know what is going on. <laughs> no, something I do want to emphasize is not being, taking care of yourself. And by taking care, it's also rooted in learning to love every part of yourself because this world is violent, y'all. This world will have you being insecure. It will have you thinking that you have, like you have no worth. Like this world will try to destroy you. And I think there's such a beauty and also such a sort of, there's just something amazing when you see black and brown people thriving and no longer just simply surviving. There's a thriving to them. There's a sense of purpose. 
And I think that's something that we need to acknowledge and something we need to all like celebrate and root for. Yeah, I really feel that. And I just, it, it brings me so much joy, yes, to like see Black and Indigenous people resting and taking that space and reclaiming that space. And I think that what white folks can do is to try to, to make more, more spaces like for Black and Indigenous rest. Um, but also, I think that what's important in resting for Black and Indigenous folks is also is also dreaming, and like I think that is what I really connect to. Of like, yes, napping, yes, like taking taking spaces for joy, but also dreaming, envisioning this this world where we can thrive and survive, and and not not just getting by, but like where we can actually take a two hour nap and and then and like and not have to like maybe go to work or you know have everything that we need to and have not only our individual selves but our communities and our ancestors and the land you know and i just i love dreaming about that (laughs) and encouraging other black and indigenous folks to dream about that too Thank you everyone for sharing. Um, I love this idea of rest as resistance. So we we touched on the idea of educating and that being a good starting point for a lot of folks. Do you have any other suggested reading for us to better educate ourselves on the real history behind uh, the history of our nation? I think um, related to that, there this isn't like one book, it's actually an, an anthology and collection of treaties that the Oklahoma State University puts out. And that's not like exactly about like this type of education, but all problems are rooted, like at least when we see things like infrastructure and lack of running water and electricity and healthcare, and specifically on reservation um, or for tribes who don't have you know recognition, it's really important for you to understand treaties. And so I'd say a really important read is Oklahoma State University has all of the treaties between the federal government and any native nation digitized, including the lost treaties of California and other treaties that were never actually ratified. So I'd say that's something that I suggest to people to look into because it's just important to be able to reference and understand why the LA River is the way it is or why there are different restrictions on reservations. So I'd say that's something that's really good to look into. And again, Oklahoma State University has it. I agree with Emma. Treaties are definitely important to learn about because it is because of treaties that has allowed, treaties with Native nations that has allowed the United States to even exist. No one in Europe or around the world would, would make a treaty with the U.S., but it's because with Native nations and that recognition of sovereignty that has allowed the U.S. to become what it is now. Someone did send a comment to us about the people's history of what is now known as the United States. Well, the people's history of the U.S. I think that's by Howard Zinn. Um, It's a very dense book from last I recall. But I think another book is definitely um, Indigenous People's History of the U.S. by Roxanne Ortiz. There's like a name in there that I'm missing. Um, But I know that they also created a children's version of the book, too, that folks can learn. Um, A podcast that I love. Um, is the Henceforward, which is a Black and Native podcast in what is now known as Canada, in which um, the podcast focuses on like what 
Black relationships are to the land um, and those conversations around Indigenous solidarity. There's definitely some articles around Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. Um, there's one that's a, behind a paywall by Philip Deloria, who is a well-known historian. And I just know it's through the New Yorker. But if you literally just Google Thanksgiving or National Day of Mourning, there are a lot of great articles that come up. And there's some there's some critical conversations with some of them. And some of those articles are from Native Indigenous peoples and their sort of relationship to Thanksgiving. Um, you know, one podcast I really enjoy, and I don't know that they've done anything recently, but it's Erica Hart and um, Ebbs. They have a podcast, but I love how unafraid they are of having like the most nuanced conversations and all of the things and criticizing all of the things from like how people were so quick to praise and and not to ever diminish the work of Stacey Abrams like I love Stacey Abrams but um the way that people celebrated Stacey Abrams but for her what she was able to do for Biden um, and, and, and like, just like having conversations like that and talking about <clears throat> colorism specifically within the black community and how, when, when Biden hadn't, had not announced, um, who his VP pick would be, it was like Stacey Abrams was kind of like her name was floating around. But then when he chose, he announced that it was going to be Kamala, the conversation about colorism came up again because it's like Stacey Abrams you know, isn't experienced enough. And it's just like, by whose standards? Um, wh- wh- how are we measuring this? And it, 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 when we look at the history, specifically here in America with Black folks, and you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, Amaya, and colorism exists across the board in all races and ethnicities. I can only speak to, you know, Black folks here, but it's this thing of like, the closer you are, the proximity to whiteness gives you more access to things and it allows you to be seen more and heard from more. And, and because of those things, the fairness of your skin and maybe the feature allows you to just like be more palatable. And so just this idea of Stacey Abrams not being experienced enough, it's like you, you have to question like, well, no, she is also an unambiguously black, dark skin, heavier black woman. And that that is part of the, the issue. People don't want that. That's, like people don't want to hear from her. That's just the reality. And so I love that they are unafraid to have these um, kind of like nuanced conversations, even when it when it's a conversation that is maybe more of an intra, intra-communal conversation and cr- criticizing like rap music or whatever it may be. Like, I just feel like they, they do it for me. Hood rat to head rap. And it's Erica Hart. And I'm a huge fan. As we were preparing for Reclaim Black Friday, we, you know, we have some articles. I don't know if this would be a part of it, but on racism and capitalism as conjoined twins, um, because I don't think people realize that they, that they're how linked they are, and and you really can't dismantle one without the other. Yeah, I mean, colorism is something that I think we we can't, it can never not be a part of the conversation. Um, because like, even within sustainable fashion, I would, I started to see, you know, when people were updating their Instagrams to reflect their support of black folks, it was very performative, but it would be like these, these again, racially ambiguous folks that I would not even know are black. And that makes a difference because who gets to be visible and who do I get to see represented? 
And if you are someone who has narrow features, very Eurocentric kind of like narrow features, fair skin, loose curls, and you get to be, you get to be like, oh, well, look, I have this black person on my Instagram. I get it. That's a problem. And I also feel like historically, like, and, and globally across the board, the darker you are, the, the worse you're treated. And that's just the reality. Um, and so I think like, and whenever I talk about colorism, it's it, and I'm also like a light skinned black person. And so I, I talk about it as much as possible because I think like you can, how can you not? And I've been, people get mad because they think it's a question of their blackness when that's not, you need to figure out where you fit in all of that, but that's not really what it's about. It's about privilege and power and understanding how it all comes into play. No. And I think there's definitely that conversation, especially when we, especially when you talked about racism and capitalism, that there's definitely a connection to that, to the basically Black Friday um, and the holiday of Thanksgiving, if we think about consumerism um, as an overall influence and also how it just, it's like a celebration of wealth, like who gets a lot, who like who gets to participate in these sales and who gets to purchase these big holiday gifts. And then when we think about the ho- the upcoming um, December holidays, like there is such, like, I think also if we add that conversation there, there's like hardly any conversation around classism or socioeconomic differences within, I, I definitely know within my community, the Navajo Nation, we don't talk about class differences everyone just assumes that because you live on an Alpha nation, like you don't have access to water, you don't have access to electricity, or you don't have access to the internet. But I also know that like on the Navajo nation, like my family, like my mother makes about a good close to $80,000. And she's considered um, upper middle class on an Alpha nation. We have a literally a four bedroom house. And then there's people who like, who don't have those same circumstances. And so like, what does it mean to also talk about interclass solidarity, mm-hmm. but also talk like, but something I do want to mention though is like wealth and also the inheritance of wealth too, because like there is an article by Vox that talks about how black folks are much less likely to inherit wealth compared to white folks because of the sort of racial dynamics that we experience within this nation. And like just this overall um, system of anti-blackness and colorism. It's uh, it's so frustrating when I, when I when I really get to the nitty gritty of talking about race relations and also like the influence of colonialism. It's just it just makes me frustrated. <laughs> yeah, these uh, you know these nuances are important, and um, I think that this discussion has been so amazing to to have everyone here. Um, I'm going to ask the final two. Um, are there any final thoughts? Well, what I want to say to the people who, um, to, I guess, Black and Indigenous folks um, specifically is um, we're all navigating this and it's really difficult to show yourself some grace. You know, I know many of us have, you know, it's come up a few times where people are in families where like, it's like, I I don't know that I can tell them not to celebrate Thanksgiving and not to have turkey. And and that's like, that's understandable. And it's really... Again, the word, the best way I could say is unfair and um, just horrible that we not only have to continue to navigate all of these 
things to survive and exist, but also like we have to carry the weight of trying to undo it all the time. And so just show yourself, have some grace. I mean, use this as a time to reflect um, for non-Black folks, um, non-Black and non-Black Indigenous folks. I think you, now you need to talk, you, you need to, if you're going to be having Thanksgiving dinner, you better get to talking. You better start talking about Biden and his administration and all his plans because we didn't vote him now, but the work ain't done. So have those conversations. Talk about white supremacy. Talk about entitlement. Talk about privilege. Talk about white saviorism. Um, yeah. So you you got you have the incredible task of of bringing the entertainment and the education that you and the knowledge that we've shared um, to your um, family, your Thanksgiving dinner. But everyone else, um, show yourself some. I'm not try, trying to throw shade to anyone. This is just this is real. This is what feels the most authentic to say. Um, show yourself some grace. Um, if you are with family and loved ones, be, be, this has been a tough year for a lot of people. Take that time to just be thankful that you get to share space with them again. Agreed. And I think it's also to be safe. Please, if you are traveling, I advise you not to travel. Uh, we are still in a pandemic and this virus is so unpredictable. Like as someone who did get exposed to COVID, the worst symptom for me was vomiting. For my mother, it was the lack of smell and taste, which resulted in vomiting for her. For my sister who is immunocompromised, I'm so fortunate that all she had was a cough, a headache and a fever. And for my youngest cousin who does have asthma, he was asymptomatic, but his mom um, had a severe case of pneumonia and had to be on an oxygen tank. And at one point, my grandma did have to go to the ER because she was developing pneumonia. This virus is so unpredictable and no matter how safe you can be, you can still be exposed to it. So if you are traveling, please don't. But if you are able to spend some time with family with all the precautions, always wear a mask, always maintain a six foot distance. It's, I cannot express this enough. This virus is unpredictable and also can be so dangerous for so many other people. And I also want to emphasize to be safe, especially to those who are queer and trans. The holidays can be a very difficult time when we have to have when we have to be in spaces where we're not welcome and we're not celebrated. And if you do have family members who are queer and trans and you do support them, just let them know. Let them know that you love them, that you support them, and that you are willing to protect them as much as you can. And I also, like, if we think about Thanksgiving, like, I have to echo what um, Katie says, have those critical conversations, but also be safe because we are living in a time where white supremacy is celebrated, openly celebrated, and violence is an everyday occurrence. Before we go, I wanted to share a quote. I know we're going to accept, but we were talking about education and with young children and, and parenting earlier. And last night, uh, a really good friend of mine, um, Tony Sturdivant, is an anti-bias um, uh, is an early an expert in early childhood education, specifically fo focused on anti-bias education. And she 
shared something last night that I just thought was incredible. People have to realize that children aren't as innocent as we think. They are experiencing life just like we are, but with limited information. And this was the comment that she made on navigating conversations about race and gender and differences because people are really afraid of, of unless you have to, unless you you know are a black person or a, a, a indigenous person where you absolutely have to talk about those things with your kids. Like everyone else feels like, well, I don't know when the right time is. And it's just like, as soon as you possibly can, because we've already seen the studies that show like children notice very early on the differences. They also notice the, the, the color of their caretakers. Um, they, they see it. And we have to stop with this idea that children aren't human. I don't know if we think they're not I don't know what we think, but they're experiencing life just like we are. And so don't be afraid of having those conversations. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out, but I'm every day having conversations with my son, with Castle about all of these things. And every day it seems like he has more questions. And I, while it can be exhausting, I welcome that because I would love for his, for the information that he's, he does get to come from me. Um, and so I just wanted to share, cause I thought that was a powerful quote. And if a child can understand racism, colonialism, capitalism, then your conservative grandparents and members can as well. I want to take a moment to reinforce the importance of having these conversations at an early age and not assuming that children are immune to race. Studies have shown that children can pick up differences related to race as early as nine months old. For parents, or honestly anyone who is curious in learning more about identity development, I highly recommend the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? by Beverly Daniel Tatum. With that, I want to extend a special thank you to our panelists, Amaya, Kai, Emma, and Katie along with our moderator, Hulisa, for sharing their valuable insights. I want to acknowledge these conversations are not easy and involve revisiting years of generational pain and trauma. This is why it's always important to create safe spaces. Please be sure to check out the show notes for any resources mentioned during this episode and information about the Reclaim Black Friday redistribution pledge. To learn more about Art of Citizenry and for information on future webinars and workshops, please visit artofcitizenry.com. You can also find me on Instagram at at Munpreetkalra. Please remember to subscribe to Art of Citizenry podcast on your favorite listening app. And of course, five stars on iTunes are always welcomed. From here on Duwamish land, sending positive and healthy vibes your way.